When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Celebrating 15 years, thanks to GLG Green Life Group, keeping your sports turf in top condition at glgcorp.com. This is the first serve, your home of tennis. Certainly is every Monday night. Great to be back after uh, missing a week uh, last week. I can't remember the last time I actually uh, missed a show, so it was nice to uh, get away for the week. Uh, Brett Phillips uh, back in the chair. Thank you to Jordan Canales who steered the ship beautifully. Courtney Walsh and... Uh, Peter Johnston, of course, uh, well, he's just a gun for hire when it comes to uh, being uh, an astute tournament director right around uh, the world. Of course, our very own uh, Kuyong Classic here, uh, looking after Zhuhai, uh, coming up in a couple of weeks' uh, time as tennis returns uh, to China. And uh, Tel Aviv, which had a one-year licence last year, has uh, got another go, but it's been pushed back to later in the year. So uh, great to hear the insights of uh, Jono uh, last week. Uh, got a big show. Gee, it was a fair morning of sport, wasn't it? And uh, the two biggest names in men's tennis, oh, did they put on a show? We'll get to that in just a moment. Yonex are a great partner of ours. I have been for quite some time. I've been trying to get these two gentlemen into the studio for uh, a little while. So we're going to talk tennis manufacturing product, the competition out there in the market, but the great brand of Yonex, which is synonymous, born and crafted over there in Japan and we're going to talk about its impact here uh, in Australia and take you behind the scenes. Our Tennis Victoria State Grade segment, our final round before the semi-finals and the final over the next two weeks. So we'll go inside uh, Grace Park uh, Hawthorne, have placed themselves uh, beautifully. My featured chat after nine o'clock uh, tonight is with the Players Tennis, uh, the Professional Tennis Players Association, who are one of the movers and shakers right now in the tennis world. Their executive director, Ahmed Nassar, is going to be my guest after nine o'clock tonight. Uh, created by Novak Djokovic and Vashik Pospisil uh, back in late 2019. So it's a fascinating chat. We're going to play part one tonight and hold over part two uh, to next week. It's a pretty lengthy chat. Connor Joyce, our newsman, will fill us in on the things we may have missed, which sometimes we can in the world of tennis. There is a lot buzzing around. Our college segment tonight with Lockie Peel catches up with Amy Stevens, who's doing a very nice job over in the US. And I was fortunate down at Keong probably about three years ago to MC a lunch for the foundation there where Amy was a special guest. So great to see her kicking on. And uh, Lachlan's got a great chat with her a little bit later on in the show. Harcourt's open line, always open for you. one 736 736 for all things real estate. Speak to Harcourt's so or you can jump on the temper text. Send a few of those through tonight. 043398. 11-16. But let's get to the main show. Cincinnati, Masters 1000. It was the two best in an epic earlier today. Djokovic is the champion in Cincinnati once more. 39th Masters title, surely one of the most remarkable of those finals. That is a match we will remember for a very long time. Seals it on his fifth championship point. 
after three hours and 49 minutes on court. Remember, he was a set and 4-2 down, running on fumes. He saved a match point along the way. Somehow, he's found a way. One of the great Masters finals. Novak, wow, many congratulations. It is the 39th Masters 1000 title, but talk us through your emotional and physical journey there tonight. And what was the longest match on record in tournament history? Crazy. Honestly, I don't know what else I can uh, I can say. Tough to describe. Definitely one of the, the toughest matches I've ever played in my life. Uh, regardless what tournament, uh, what, what category, what level, what player. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, from the beginning till the end, We've both been through so much, so many ups and downs, highs and lows, uh, incredible points, uh, poor games, uh, you know, uh, heat strokes, uh, coming back. Uh, I, I just, overall, one of, the, one of the toughest and most exciting matches I was ever part of. And, you know, th these, are, these are kind of moments and matches that, that I continue to work for day in, day out, you know. I never, I was never in doubt that, uh, that I could deliver the A game when it mattered the most and I'm just, just thrilled. And 2-2 in that head-to-head -head record, it's already quite some rivalry, but just explain how intense they are against Carlos out here. Yeah, I mean, you've seen it, there's, there's not much to say. I mean, anybody who is watching on the stadium or on the TV has seen that, that uh, you know, this rivalry just gets better, just gets better, it gets better and better. Uh, amazing player, tons of respect for him. For such a young young player to uh, show so much uh, poise in important moments is impressive. It's gonna be tough for me uh, to talk right now, but I try. I try to, to do my best. Uh, first of all, I wanna congratulate Novak once again. Uh, it's amazing uh, playing against you, sharing the court with you, learning from you. So so close. So this uh, this match was uh, really close, but uh, uh, I, I learned a, a lot from a champion like like you. So congratulations to you and your team. Then I, I want to, to say thank you to, to my team. We are working really hard you know, to, to stay in, in this stage, to, to play this, this kind of matches, these finals. Uh, I'm grateful to, to have a team like, like I have, like you guys. Uh, it's amazing to, to work with you. Uh, I want to say thank you. To thank you not only in the professional part, but even in the personal part. You, uh, yeah, you are a great sample for, for me that uh, I learned from, from you uh, every day. So I want to say thank you to, to all of you. And then I have my brother here as well. It's great to, to have you here supporting me every, every day, uh, to make me uh, be a better person every day, uh, learning from you as well. So thank you, thank you very much for, for being with me. And then Cincinnati, I just can say thank you to all the support since day one. It's been amazing to, to play in front of you. As I said uh, yesterday, they say it's, uh, Cincinnati love me, but uh, I love Cincinnati. I'll be back stronger. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, it's the first time I've seen him genuinely emotional, Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, tears in his eyes. Three hours and 49 minutes. He was a setup. He was in a good spot. But Djokovic, I mean, we've just told this story so many times, haven't we? I think this is brilliant. I love when the generations clash. I love when the old dog still got a bit of fuel in the tank. There's a lot driving Novak. He's up against the young pup who fears absolutely no one. 
He just plays his game. He's confident. The head-to-head is two apiece. It's not going to be uh, the head-to-head of Nadal and Djokovic, but Djokovic dealing with another Spaniard who's got all the traits of the great warrior who, fingers crossed, can get back for one last hurrah uh, next year, whatever that looks like uh, out on the tennis court. But these two, the four meetings they've had, well, apart from Alcaraz having to, well, effectively play the last, uh, what, set and a half at the French Open under duress, that would have probably gone five and gone the uh, journey. But up until that stage, it was an epic match. It's quality. I mean, we are blessed. We've been blessed for two decades at the top of the men's game to have some unbelievable tennis. And here's Carlos coming in to uh, take on arguably the greatest of all time. So if Djokovic has got maybe another two years of really good high-level tennis as Elgras is getting better, let's sit back and enjoy it. Unless an Aussie's going to have a withering run, I'm going to get to the Aussies. Gee, I've been away for a couple of weeks and there's just a bit more optimism. And I want to get to that in a moment. But unless an Aussie's going to have a withering run, who knows, they're in good form on the hard courts right now. Uh, Bring on Elkaraz and Djokovic for a date at the US Open. Novak would love to get one back, certainly at the majors. Uh, Quality, absolute quality. In saying that, our very own Max Purcell, who Nathan Healy, I'll say it again, his former coach said on this program three years ago, We'll keep pulling it out of the archives when we have to. He said, Max Purcell can be top 20. And I was taken back. Not to dismiss it, not to suggest it couldn't happen. But when at that stage you're about 240-odd, don't know if we were quite seeing the trajectory. We knew the talent was there. How could it be harnessed? Here he is, 47 in the world. He takes a set off the world number one. Come on, Max, keep going. Alexi Popperin up to 40 in the world. This is where he should be, Popper, and it's been a slow burn compared to Alex Dimonor, who rose quick, about the same age. But Popper has dug in this year. He's blue-collar. He's winning some tough matches. Xavier Melise has been a great addition as coach. So the natural talent has always been there, that effortless stroke play that he has, but he's winning a little bit ugly when he has to. And knowing that in this game, there's no shortcuts. Alex Dimonor, when I've been away the last two weeks, makes a Masters 1000 final. He's at 13 the world. We said at the start of the year on this show that if he could maintain his ranking between 10 and 20 this year, that would be a big tick. Don't drop out of that area. Maybe, just maybe, he could be inside the top 10 by year's end. Jordan Thompson at 50. It's been as high as 43. Come on, Tomo, there's more in there. I think uh, Marinko Matosevic has had a great effect uh, since he's combined coaching Thompson and O'Connell. Alex Vukic, what a story at 51. So O'Connell at 68, Kokonakis at 77, and Kubler at 87. Don't tell me those three aren't capable of being where Purcell, Thompson and Vukic are. Kokonakis is, will continue to be the fascinating one, arguably the most talented, but just can't quite get over the line in some of these big matches. And I just wonder if something else needs to be added to that Kokonakis camp just to uh, change the uh, dynamic. He's been given a, a berth in the Davis Cup team. We'll talk about that with Connor Joyce a little bit later on. So he's got been given the nod, and there are some past performances to go on, and when Leighton's got to make the call, do you go on someone who has got it done in the past, or do you go with a new boy who might be able to step up? But are they going to be overawed? So all those decisions come into the melting pot. Uh, but as we said a few weeks ago, I don't like the narrative that 
we trot out that, oh, we've got eight or nine players inside the top 100. That's great. And the, the top 100 is sort of the benchmark, but we've got to aim higher than that. We can, by year's end, there's no reason why we can't have half a dozen inside the top 50. And that sounds a hell of a lot better. Our Aussies are certainly capable. Uh, Coco Goff saluted in Cincinnati today. First WTA 1000. So she's going along beautifully, just keeps ticking boxes, Coco, and she's done amazing things uh, for her age. So she uh, salutes. So Cincinnati done. There's word that it might move to Charlotte over the next couple of years. Now, we know by 2025 uh, that Cincinnati and Montreal and Toronto and uh, a couple of others will become two-week events. Some like it, some don't. But all about giving more opportunity for about 30 or 40 players on the tour to play in those bigger events and earn some bigger prize money. Uh, but Alcaraz and Djokovic, if you haven't taken a look at that, find some time this week, kick back and just enjoy the show. We'll touch on the other Aussies a little bit uh, later on, but there's certainly some optimism around our men who are right now rolling up the sleeves and getting it done. After the break, we're going to welcome in the Yonex team to take us inside one of the great tennis manufacturers. It's coming up next on The First Serve. Celebrating 15 years, thanks to GLG Green Life Group, your specialist in keeping your sports turf in top condition with minimal disruption at glgcorp.com. This is The First Serve, your home of tennis. Yonex was founded right here in the Niigata region of Japan by Minoru Yonayama. And from the very beginning, craftsmanship was of the utmost importance. What separates Yonex from other brands is they own their own factory. And after all, to be considered a true craftsman, you have to make it yourself. Yes, you do have to make it yourself. Yonex, a terrific uh, long-time partner of the First Serve who got behind us and um, forever uh, certainly appreciative of that. A world leader in tennis equipment, rackets, strings, balls, apparel, footwear, bags, accessories, you name it, they've got it. Here in Australia and New Zealand, of course, to our SENZ audience listening in tonight, the distributor for Yonex, which is, of course, uh, Japan-based and uh, formed, as you heard there. Uh, Well-known global uh, brand, Grey Nichols, whose history details back family business going back to the uh, the 1800s. In the studio tonight, Robert Jordan, the Yonex brand manager for Grey Nichols, who's been the architect of our partnership. Great to see you, Rob. And uh, finally, a debut on the first serve in the studio. It's taken a while. It has, BP. Because you don't spend a lot of time in Melbourne, uh, Rob. The airport is your best friend. Not quite, but it has been lately. <laughs> hey, good to see you. There's plenty to pull apart. And Ethan Georgiakoulos, of course, the Yonex Sales and Marketing Coordinator for Grey Nicks uh, in the tennis space as well. Hey, it's great to see you. We've run into each other a few times this year. You cover a bit of ground as well. Yeah, I don't like to stay still either. <laughs> but that, that's, that sort of fits uh, the tennis world, doesn't it? Because tennis doesn't stay still. It's here, there and everywhere, Rob. It is everywhere. And uh, Ethan is everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, support, supporting all our... Sponsored ju- junior players particularly. Yep. And then I'm out and about everywhere supporting our dealers. We have to be. It's everywhere. Yeah. And it doesn't sit still, like you no. said. It doesn't. And I think the reason we wanted to do this segment, and we've covered a lot of ground on the first serve across a lot of topics across the journey, but we've probably never gone and dug a little bit deeper into the space that you guys live and breathe uh, every day. And it's, it's a competitive market out there. And Robin, you and I have had many discussions across the journey. You know who, a bit like uh, the AFL clubs, you know, they all spy on each other and scout and, you know, look at what the opposition's doing. And I think everyone in tennis knows who the established uh, tennis uh, brands are. 
Um, how does that sort of just work in, in layman's terms for the people uh, listening out there who, you know, go and choose their their racket or their accessories for a particular brand? Uh, just tell us about the space. Well, it's changed a lot since I first got into the business a long time ago because now we've got the internet and that made a major change. So we find a lot of people do their research online. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a, it's a personal piece of equipment. And we always recommend to someone that they go and see a tennis specialist store, talk to the staff. Yep. The greatest thing that occurs, and it's a real big thing in Australia particularly, is the demo system. You go into a store, you talk to the staff, mm. they'll recommend a record or two. You take it out and you try it for a week. Uh, and you make your selection on the court where it counts. So uh, that's that's what we always recommend. What do, what do you think sets, and, and both of you can maybe jump in here, but what do you think uh, sets Yonix apart? I mean, obviously the association with Japan, both of you spend a bit of time in that space and either travel there or you're talking to your Japanese counterparts a hell of a lot. They all come down here, obviously, for the Australian Summer of Tennis where you have that face-to-face -face, uh, contact, but that is the unique part about Yonix compared to some of the other brands. Well, it is it's still it's it, a unique part of it is it's a family business. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, it is on the Tokyo Stock Exchange, but the Yoniyama family, um, they uh, manage the business, um, which has been going since 1946. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of our unique things is that we do make our performance product in our own factory in Japan. Mm. Correct. Craft our own product. Sorry, Jason. Correct. <laughs> Craft it. Because if you've been to Japan and you appreciate the way that they look at the things that they do, it is craft. Mm -hmm. uh, and Yonex are uh, particularly fussy about the product and what gets out the door. And also it's research and de development as well. Well, I think every year, Rob, we've had this partnership. There's always uh, a new racket launched or maybe multiple uh, rackets uh, launched. So obviously everyone in the manufacturing space is always trying to find the newest, the latest. Uh, obviously technology, Ethan, keeps advancing uh, all the time, doesn't it? Of course, definitely. And at Yonex, we don't like to sit still either. I mean, every new model needs something new, something unique, something to keep the public interested. Um, yeah, we don't sit still. Yeah, there's got to be some some update always. I mean, it's just standard. Yeah. So we'll get to the latest record, which I think you're launching out of the US Open uh, next week. Might even give one away on the show. Actually, I've got in early there. <laughs> little wink, wink, wink. Uh, Rob, you've been very good over the years. People love our Yonex products. The mail we have got who have, when they've received the goods been outstanding. So uh, uh, we've certainly uh, really appreciated that. Um, the, the, tennis, the tennis industry. So... I just want to drill down a little bit further on the, just the, the crafting in Japan. I mean, you know, you both of you have sort of been inside there and seen what it's like. Uh, try and take us inside what they're trying to achieve and uh, just the, the level of staff over there and how many people are sort of part of this big uh, global brand. I think in Japan there's a workforce of about 2,500. Because <clears throat> apart from tennis racket manufacturing in Japan, which yep. at the moment are two factories, uh, and they've started construction on a third because of the the worldwide demand for the brand at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, we also craft in uh, Japan badminton, which is actually biggest sport. <laughs> uh, I played badminton in school. I was a star badminton. A star, right, Brett? Uh, and uh, also uh, golf. And yes. also since 1995, Bionics have been crafting snowboards in Japan as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's a varied business, but... 
when you go to a modern factory of theirs now, it's very clinical. Um, it's a space which you can't get into because it's temperature controlled, dust controlled, Climate humidity. Controlled. It's a crazy place. Uh, they spend a lot of time on automa- automating processes which traditionally in the past have been done by hand, but mm. that whole function to improve the quality and the outcome of the product. So, Ethan, when you're out and about, you mm. and you're dealing, uh, you know, quite a few of the juniors in that space who are, you know, starting their journey. So, you're dealing with juniors, talking to parents. I mm-hmm. obviously saw you um, work pretty closely up at the 12 and 14 nationals, and you were handing out business cards and obviously forming great <laughs> relationships though with uh, people and and trying to give them some surety around the Yonex brand. Of course, I mean, when we have players and coaches and everyone part of the Yonex, fam- it, it's we treat them like a family member. I mean, we want them to feel the support feel that we're there with them every step of the way. Um, hence why we start at such a young age. We, we saw each other at the 12 and 14s nationals. So even from there all the way up to their adult career, like we want them to feel supported and yeah, like I said, part of the team. So how does it actually work that you go and identify and the criteria behind that and then that sort of ongoing relationship and how much you're involved in the journey? Yes, yes. Well, tennis, we are fortunate enough to have a ranking system, if you will. Um, whether it be UTR, ITF, whatever the next ranking system that comes out will be. Um, so that gives us a guide of who's, you know, who we should look at, who we should scout, who we should pursue. Um, and on top of this, we have our opinion leaders, like our coaches that we trust, who are one-on-one with the players more often than, than we are. Um, so we rely on their support and their feedback as to who we should pursue, who we should scout, because it's not just about rankings, mm. because you might have someone correct, correct well, well outside yep. that that it, no one knows about quite yet. So we rely on these people. It's a bit like an AFL recruiter, just finding a little gem in the country somewhere or just off, off Broadway. Rob. Yeah, he sort of disappears for a while there, Brett, and we wonder where he is sometimes. Yeah. But... It's a little a little uh, a player tucked away that no one knows about that you can get behind. That would be the good ones to find. James Bond. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> I mean, the, the space in general, Rob, you've been in this caper for a long time. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of healthy competition out there. What is the relationship like between all the, the big major tennis brands in sort of fighting for the space, if you like? It's look, it's pretty, it's, um, it's healthy. Uh, and you're correct. We all, we all fight for space in stores, um, our place in the mar- the marketplace as well. But we know all each, we we know each other. Mm. Um, we bump into each other regularly. It's all very convivial. Um, at the same time, you you want to beat them, but uh, no, look look, it's good. It's um, yeah. There's there's nothing negative about it at all, and that and that's been the case for many many years. I think so. Yeah. In in my experience, and we went through a COVID period too, which was pretty tough, wasn't it, for the tennis. Uh, you know, your industry here in Australia. Well, interestingly, it was pretty good time. Um, after June 2020, mm. when the rest of Australia could get out and about, not us in Victoria, mm-hmm. um, but the, the two sports that did very, very well because of their distancing was yep. tennis and golf. That's true. And um, our distance. And mm. we, anecdotally, we got so many messages from deals to say that they had guys coming for a restring who they haven't seen for eight years uh, or I'm getting back into it. I want to buy a new racket. Coming back into the sport yeah, because it was safe to do so. Yeah. yeah. And it seems too after that period of time as well, because it, it did drive considerable growth for everybody. At the same time, every brand 
had issues with supply, uh, particularly the guys who were getting their records out of China particularly mm. had tough because the Chinese just shut down whole r- r- regions overnight. Yep. We were affected to a lesser extent. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was actually good for the sport in some respects because it seems that a lot of players that came back to it during that time is a fair percentage of those who have continued on um, um, throughout as well. And that's been the same for golf. So they, those were the two sports that did very well out of that um, get, we can get back outside period. Tell me about the technological advancements in uh, in rackets. And for the layman out there, so we've got tennis fans who listen to this show. We've got uh, sports fans who obviously listen to this radio station where tennis is one of the sports they might like and they just see a player hitting a ball and think, well, why do they choose that racket? What racket gives you certain things that other rackets don't give you, Ethan? I mean, this is obviously supposed to be sort of touched on it briefly. Can we go a little bit deeper into that? I think we can, yeah. <laughs> um, so what a lot of the racket manufacturers are going for these days is... Uh, absorbing vibration, yep. so dampening, making it as comfortable as possible on the arm, on the body, less stress on the player. Um, so that's that's exactly what we do as well. I mean, we introduced uh, a material called vibration dampening mesh or VDM, which was a cloth-based material wrapped under the grips of all our rackets, which pretty much did just that, absorbed all shock before it got anywhere near a player's arm. Uh, and that that's just part of that just yeah absorbs all the shock and makes it a lot more comfortable so that's just one example of what we do but then you can dig a lot deeper in terms of what a racket offers what it does you know from string patterns to weights to head sizes um if that's how long we've got. So I imagine, and you, look, you can you can expand it. I think it's it's a really interesting space because a lot of people wouldn't be aware of this stuff. And also the dialogue that you get back from players and just discussing technology with them because they're out living and breathing it and mm. hitting a lot of balls on a, a weekly basis and and what sort of input they have into the advancement of uh, record, record technology. Well, it's all part of it. Um, <clears throat> a recommend, all recommend manufacturers will have a range of a series of frames to suit different playing styles. Yep. So that's where the the design concepts um, are focused on, and that involves technical testing, robotically, but also on court play testing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our brand will be doing that with our our sponsor players um, on tour, particularly. Um, they'll, they'll ask them to try a couple of things out, particularly the racket that they're using now and mm. the one that's going to be replacing it. Uh, but it's all it's all uh, the new racket we're releasing this Friday, the Percept, which has replaced a range previously um, called Vehicle Pro. Yep. That's our control frame. Mm. So it's all about control and feel and accuracy, and that's what they've been concentrating on um, in that, this next step with the racket. It is, and there's a whole list of technological upgrades in that too, standard for Yonex. With, um, you know, from absorbing, again, back to a new absorbing method. So we have a, it's called servo filter, mm-hmm. which is a stretchy mesh type material, which is around the whole frame in between the graphite. So absorbs all the shock, not just in the, in the grip handle area, but throughout the whole frame. We've got uh, a longer shaft, which gives the player better ball pocketing, so they can control the ball and hold it in the string bed that little bit longer. Uh, and slightly more graphite as well is between the three and tw- nine o'clock positions of the racket uh, to give a lot more stability for the player and accuracy and accuracy, of uh, course, which is important. We don't want to miss too often. No, we'll see. And I've, 
as you mentioned before, I've been, I've been around a bit yeah. a long time. Yeah. And, uh, Statue, actually, we built it. Thanks. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, uh, no, they'll be taking me across the road to Sandy Hand Cemetery, <laughs> oh, yeah. I think, mate. Um, but it's, I, when I first got into the business, it was the transition time from wood, mm. from, from timber rackets. And that was a time when we had graphite facing, whoop-de-doo. Uh, <laughs> and then all the guys got into full graphite frames. And so each year there were substantial steps and changes and people trying new frame shapes. We saw big wide-bodied frames like the Wilson Profile. We had the Prince Thunderstick, yep. all this stuff, and they were just trying it. And every year there was a considerable step, but it's all come back now. We need to get a break in. More on the other side as we delve into the great brand that is uh, Yonex, uh, great partners of ours here on the first set with Robert Jordan and Nathan Georgiakos, of course, part of the Yonex team. If you want to uh, make an inquiry, you can on the temper text 0433 98 11 16, or you might have a call 1300 736 736. Celebrating 15 years, thanks to GLG Green Life Group. Your specialist in keeping your sports turf in top condition with minimal disruption at glgcorp.com. This is the first serve, your home of tennis. Welcome back on a Monday night. Uh, nice to be back in the chair. We always uh, race through talking uh, the world of tennis. Cincinnati done. We're a week away from the US Open. Uh, Qualies, of course, starting Wednesday morning, Australian Eastern Standard Time. So the matchups to come through for the Aussies in the next 24 hours. Uh, the Yonex team are in the studio. Robert Jordan, the Yonex uh, brand manager for Grey Nichols, a great. Uh, Great brand. It's been really known as a great cricketing brand across the journey. It's also adopted a lot of other sports along the way. And Ethan George Arkless, of course, the Yonex and Sales Marketing Coordinator. Now, gents, I received this a few weeks ago. There were reports a few years ago, and I stored this text, and I said, when we get the Yonex team in, I'll ask them, around 2017, that Yonex had started to financially penalise their contracted players for every racket they smashed. Sounds like a good idea to me. I also noted that Alexander Bublik left the Yonex stable of players soon after he smashed three frames consecutively at Montpellier back in February. Maybe you could ask the Yonex team about this when you have them on. We were just talking about this uh, during the ad break. It's a bugbear of mine. I can't stand blokes that smash rackets. I don't think Raff has ever smashed one in his entire career. And Uncle Tony said, if you smash one, I'm out of here. Roger probably did a few when he was in the juniors, tucked away on court number 18, but he became a great statesman. Where, where, do, where do we sit on all of that? And is that is there truth to that? Yeah, there definitely is truth to that. <laughs> um, I don't think any brand really wants to see their rackets get smashed in saying that. Um, but Yonex is, is definitely on the, that page. Um, I mean, we are about our craftsmanship, like you said, yep. there's so much respect for, for making that product. So to see someone go ahead and give it a good old whack <laughs> is, um, no, not a very good look. So yes, Yonex does fine players who break rackets. Okay. So it's in a, in a contract, obviously the players you have a relationship with, uh, explain how, how that works. Is there a warning or is it just straight, uh, you smash a record, uh, contract cut up, dismissed. They all know, um, uh, it's. I believe it's $3,500 US mm. per racket. It's br broken. You could probably say that some of them, it's not a lot of money. Yep. Uh, and we've had two instances where the one mentioned before, and there was another one in Roehampton qualifying for Wimbledon a few years ago who lost, went out, Australian player, yep. went out the back, thought he was 
safe, yep. mm. quite unseen, mm. and proceeded to break five. It was all filmed, uh, and the next day, uh, Yonex announced the cessation of his sponsorship. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, they don't like it at all. Um, <clears throat> it's and uh, us and other manufacturers being the same same boat, mm. and uh, and we. And we also have to look at that ourselves, don't we, Ethan, in Australia with some of you know our junior players? We do. I mean, a part of it, there, there is a lot of passion in the game. No we, doubt. Un- we understand that. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, it is not a good look. I mean, it, going out on court and seeing a, a junior player, even worse, you know, get angry and start breaking rackets. <laughs> and just uh, the one that circled me over the years is that, you know, the one that will sort of casually put the racket over their knee and just, you know, oh. like, it's, like it's worth nothing, Rob. Yes. And these rackets are highly valued in terms of their price and then the, obviously the, the craftsmanship, as we've said, that goes into it. Exactly. And uh, as Aethan, that's what Aethan said before. I mean, Yonex as a, a company yep. have a passion for what they make. But, yeah, look, I, I don't condone the behaviour at all. I, uh, I think like you, Brett, we've discussed this over the years and it's something that irks us both greatly. Mm. Um and you wonder sometimes about the player themselves mm. um, and their um, mental state to actually get to their point where they do something like that. Exactly. So I just wanted to clear that up. So we've got some clarity around yep. that. That is a uh, there, good thing. There's a fine. Uh, the <laughs> new Percept racket. So we're launching this around US Open time. Friday. Take us inside this racket and what people can expect. It's, fr- it's Friday. The worldwide launch yep. is just in New York this Friday. Just before the US Open. Yeah. Well, I think I went the last time I went to the US Open, I went to the Yonex. Not sure what. Oh, that was 2019. That's right. Yeah. The I note. went along. Yes. You had, it was you a great know, function. had your nose in the food Could bag that a couple night. of extra sandwiches on still, <laughs> but that was a good night. There was a lot in your room afterwards, apparently. But anyway, um, yes, as usual, a big launch um, in New York. The mm-hmm. Percept, which we touched on before, has replaced... Uh, what was called the V-Core Pro, and yep. the reason for that, the V-Core Pro and V-Core, it's another range we have, a bit of confusion in the with consumers about the difference. Mm. Is the Pro just like something a little bit different? Is it's it actually a, a complete different new frame. Mm-hmm. So they, they decided to come up with a new name, name for it, and it's Percept, and it's all about the racket being perceived by the player to be a natural extension of the arm, so the perception of that. Hence, percept. Improve the perception on the ball. Okay. Yes. So I'm just curious. I mean, there's obviously a lot of players in the Yonex stable. Some have been there for uh, quite some time. There's obviously the new ones you're bringing to the fold as their tennis resume is uh, rising yeah. and you want to form a partnership. With it. I imagine there are some, a bit like you know, those that play cricket, we think of the Grey Nichols brand, who just use their original bat. They love their bat. It feels good. They keep that bat. And there'll be others who are constantly changing and getting the most modern sort of technology in terms of their racket, I imagine. We want our players using the most up-to-date, yep. modern, as modern as you can technology. Um, prime example was Denis Shapovalov, mm. not that long ago, who was the face of the V-Core. He was. Our red, I guess, our red V-Core model. Yep. Um, and a couple of years ago, he transitioned to the E-Zone range. He tried the new version, the new prototype, was a huge fan of it, loved all the updates, and actually stuck with it. He played the Aussie Open here last year with it. Mm. Um, but then the new V-Core came out after that. He, again, he tried the new version, was a big fan of that one, and then moved back to the V-Core again. So players just want to try and yep. use the newest technology. Unfortunately, no Dennis this year for the US Open, which is disappointing. I uh, always love watching uh, the uh, the lefty uh, play. The AO is massive. And for you guys, it's it's a huge fortnight, isn't it? Because you, you have a prominent spot there. 
obviously the stringing service, the partnership with Tennis Australia and the AO. Take us inside that. Well, it's a whole month. <laughs> True. So we move in uh, basically January the 2nd. Yep. <clears throat> Takes a couple of days to set up. And then there's the player ready day, which this year I think is about the 4th. 4th or 5th. Yeah, so that's when a, a player arrives mm. that everything, the services at the to- the tournament is about, uh, available to them. But Aiton's um, more involved in that mm. than than me. Yes. So from the fourth or fifth, we have to be ready. As soon as the first player rocks up for training, yeah. all our 20 machines are set up. Our front desk is, is up and running. Everything's go time. And we're there from, let's say, the fifth till first or second of February, mm. depending on when the tournament ends. Um, but it's a frantic month. Yeah. It is a frantic month. <laughs> Very early mornings for our stringers. Some from 4, 5 a.m. in the morning yep. until half an hour after the completion of the last match, which can be, we've all stayed up till two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning to watch an epic tennis match. Oh yeah. Uh, so think of the poor <laughs> no string about that. Well, we had young uh, Jeremy Reeve, uh, we were talking about mm. Nathan a few weeks ago, who went to Wimbledon, gave us a great sort of uh, account. I'd love to get him uh, back on the show, um, who yeah described those first few days as absolutely chaotic and you've got to be on call and anything can happen. Uh, requests can come in uh, at any time. Uh, what, what does... What's been the most? Has there been an unusual request that you can think of across the journey? Or is it fairly sort of stock standard what the players want? Or one that's sort of gone, hello? Oh, I think the main wacky one, it's probably always around tension, to be honest. Players requesting wacky tensions. Uh, I think one that's been documented quite well is uh, a crazy 88-pound tension used by a, a player from Turkey, I believe, a doubles player. Right. A young lady. Um, 88 pounds is the max the machine can pull. (laughs) She comes in and goes, what's the most the machine can do? Right. Uh, so for the layman out there listening, just take us inside that. What does that feel like? That feels like hitting with a frying pan. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like a frying pan. Might help my game. Jeez. Um, so we have wacky requests that high. But then we have players such as uh, Adrian Manorino, mm. the Frenchman. Love watching uh, the uh, the crafty Frenchman. <laughs> oh, yes. He's quite talented. Uh, who comes in at 10.5 kilos, which is about 20, what, 22, 23 pounds or so. Yeah. So that's like a, a butterfly net. Yeah. Well, and that's the way he sort of just, he's a massager, isn't he? The way he uh, massages the ball around the court. It's just beautiful. I watch him every day of the year. Uh, Yonex should start making wakeboards on the text. Can you just take that back to the team meeting with um, the Grey Nicks family? <laughs> I'm, I'm making a note of that <laughs> right now. That. I shall send that back. We have regular uh, contact multiple times a day with Japan, and they're always <laughs> interested in our uh, feedback. Well, that's and, just come uh, through on the temper. Uh, I've written so it in my book. Jot that down, and uh, we'll come back and see where Yonex expanded. Thank you, gents. Hey, great to have you in. Um, where do we best sort of uh, go on? Yonex.com, the website. Australia, New Zealand, you can uh, check out all of the we, range of products. We actually don't have a, a local website. So if you go into yonex.com, yep. that's the international website. Mm. You can see the the full range of product. Uh, and um, as I say, it's our launch this week mm-hmm. for our new racket, the Percept. It's been out in out and about in the demo system now for a month, uh, which has been going very, very well. Mm-hmm. So um, it's popped down to your local shop and... Try it out. No doubt. Hey, look, let's do this again uh, sometime. Absolutely. Because this has been an impressive uh, debut from you, you fine gentlemen. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Rob. Yonex, Thanks, our Brett. feature uh, tonight. We'll touch on Tennis Victoria's State Grade, the latest action across the weekend, coming up next. Celebrating 15 years, thanks to GLG Green Life Group.
your specialist in keeping your sports turf in top condition with minimal disruption at glgcorp.com. This is The First Serve, your home of tennis. Welcome back. Uh, just going to squeeze in our Tennis Victoria Stake Grade segment. Round 14 for the men, round 15 for the women. The last round of the regular season saw our finalists confirmed. Three mouthwatering matchups set up for next weekend. So for the women, the finals seemingly uh, kicked off uh, a week early on the women's side. Diggers Rest and Grace Park Hawthorne playing off for a finals berth. In the end, Grace Park Hawthorne did the job 4-2. Two match tie-break victories in the doubles proving critical. Miranda Poyle from Grace Park, good enough to join us. Miranda, uh, nice to make uh, the finals of the semis and the, the final to come over the next two weeks. Well done. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, we're very excited. Absolutely. Uh, take us through the weekend and uh, how it played out. Well, it was very dramatic because um, going into that matchup, we were expecting to play um, a strong Diggers Rest team and we were fourth on the ladder. Um, we didn't. And we didn't know what was going to happen with Harkaway and Kuyong. So mm. for us to finish that and um, go from jump from fourth to second and have a home semifinal is um, a really great outcome. No doubt. So you've got that home semifinal against Harkaway. They sneak into the uh, last finals position by a point uh, despite losing uh, 6-0 to title favourites uh, Kuyong uh, Lawn. So give us a little preview, if you can, of what's ahead this weekend. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think we've played them three times this year um, and we beat them last year in the semi-final of grade one pennant. Um, so I think we've got a good um, idea on who we're going to play and I guess we'll just work on our strategy in terms of our matchups and doubles. I was talking to you earlier in the season. What about weeks down the track, just how you've seen the competition overall and how it's evolved? Um, well, I've definitely, I mean, Kuyong are... Um, favourites, they're very strong and um, yep. they've proven themselves throughout the season um, and then I would say from two to fifth has also been very competitive and it was really up to the last couple of weeks in terms of who was going to get a final spot. Yeah, gee, it's uh, been good competition as I uh, take a look at the table. So Kuyong Long, Grace Park, Harkaway, Diggers Rest, Royal South Yarra and Beaumaris Lawn. Some uh, quality teams amongst uh, the women. We're a little short for time tonight, Miranda, but I appreciate you giving us some insights uh, we're going to get down and have a look at the semis and the finals and uh, hopefully we get to talk to Grace Park again over the next fortnight. Thanks so much for having me. Miranda Bye. Poyle giving us the update. For the men, uh, Faulkner, we've had them on a couple of times this season. They end the regular season unbeaten. Their latest success, an impressive 4-2 eclipse of uh, second place Grace Park away from home. So two thrilling match tie-break victories from uh, Ken Kavrak, who's played on the tour at number one doubles and singles. They uh, set uh, Faulkner on their way. They'll take on Kuyong Lawn. In the semi-final this weekend, uh, with the team from Stonington booking their place with a comprehensive 6-0 triumph against Hilden Park. So Kuyong Lawn dropped just one set for the day on their way to victory. Royal South Yarra finished their season on a high, defeating uh, Tennis World 4-2. And North Ringwood versus MCC Glen Iris Valley was unfortunately a non-starter uh, due to the wet conditions. So the semi-final fixtures for the men, Faulkner uh, versus Kuyong Lawn at Royal Park. Uh, tennis club this weekend, Grace Park up against uh, MCC Glen Iris Valley. That's a Grace Park uh, tennis club, a beautiful uh, club in uh, Hawthorne, right next to the old uh, Glen Ferry Oval. And for the women, as we just heard, Grace Park up against Harkaway. So it's going to be a very busy day at Grace Park. And Kuyong received the bye and moved straight into the grand final. Coming up uh, after the break, we're going to go inside the Professional Tennis Players Association, the PTPA, which was originally set up by Novak Djokovic and Vasek Pospisil. We're going to speak to their executive director, 
who was appointed 12 months ago, Ahmed Nassar, who's worked in a lot of the team sports out of the US, particularly the NFL, and trying to really establish an effective players association in an individual sport. It's a different ball game. Some great insights. Connor Joyce with all the news of the week. Our college segment with Lockie Peel. He'll catch up with Amy Stevens. All to come here on The First Serve. Celebrating 15 years, thanks to GLG Green Life Group. Your specialist in keeping your sports turf in top condition with minimal disruption at glgcorp.com. This is The First Serve, your home of tennis. It really means the world to me to be named uh, PTPA Executive Director. My whole career uh, has really been about working with athletes and, and particularly groups of athletes, men and women, um, to help them get more value out of being an athlete. And I'm thrilled to be able to continue that here with the Professional Tennis Players Association. I think the future of tennis is quite bright. And it is a sport that has over a billion viewers globally, billion fans. By virtue of those billion fans, more popular globally than American football and baseball combined. And yet, it's a sport that has about 10% of the revenue of American football and baseball combined. And so being able to narrow that gap is something that we're gonna be laser focused on. To the players, I would say this. This is your players association. It's right there in the name, players. It exists for you. We want to work with you on behalf of you. We're gonna build this business in your image. You are all world-class athletes. We wanna build a world-class team working and dedicated on your behalf. So please join us. Our feature chat tonight goes inside the PTPA, the new mover and shaker in tennis, the Professional Tennis Players Association, founded in 2019 by Novak Djokovic and Canadian Varshik Pospisil. What began as a conversation sparked a global movement to reform and grow the business of tennis. Novak, the, uh, Novak at the time said, we want to represent more the voices of the players that are normally not heard. The main goal, to unite the players across the tours and represent their voices. So in the very different uh, governance structure of tennis, the sport has never had a players association like we see with the AFL and other team sports here in Australia and around the world. It was 12 months ago that the PTPA reset and really started the journey of establishing their position. They appointed an executive director, Ahmed Nassar, whose voice you just heard, who brought a wealth of experience from multiple sports in working with athletes to maximise their time in the sport. He led the NFL Players Incorporated as the president looking after the players' commercial interests. Here is uh, part one. It's a lengthy chat, so I'm going to play this over the next two weeks, but part one of my chat with Ahmed Nassar. Thanks for, for having me on. Um, always happy to talk uh, tennis and uh, talk players, uh, players associations, player rights. And yeah, we are amazingly coming up on a year because there are many days where it feels like we just uh, got started. And um, there are many days where it feels like we've been doing this for 25 years. Um, and, uh, and you're right, um, you know, Novak and Vashik started this in 2020. Um, as player leaders. Um, and, you know, so so it's really been more than just the year, obviously, that I've been here. And I like to think of the year as a year ago, we rebooted and, and, and re-energized um, the PTPA with an eye towards making it um, a long-term sustainable players association, um, really built in the mold. Uh, you mentioned some of the Australian players associations, the cricketers, the rugby players, and they've represented men and women for decades. 
And uh, my own experience uh, in the United States was was with uh, many of the domestic players associations as well. Um, basketball, football, base American football, baseball, uh, men's and women's uh, 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 soccer and uh, women's basketball. Um, and and it really and, you know, that that community is pretty tight knit globally. Um, there's a World Players Association, the FIFA players. Um, and so uh, it, it's been very helpful. And that was originally how I got introduced to the players in tennis was having had experience uh, across different players associations and, and really just kind of talking through with Novak and Vashik uh, and other players and their advisors. Well, how does it work in other sports? And, and understanding that not all of that is applicable to tennis because tennis is an individual sport. Tennis is a truly international. There's no domestic leagues um, really in tennis. It's a truly international sport, which I think is a strength, not a weakness. Um, but understanding that not 100% of, of the uh, other players associations experiences would be, would translate into tennis, but also understanding that, well, it's greater than zero, um, which, which had really been the case for so long and for far too long. Um, and so over the last year, we really set about, um, really um, building the infrastructure. Um, so we've got staff people now, we've got about 10 people full-time on staff across the globe, people in Europe, people in, in uh, Africa, people in Asia and Australia, um, people obviously in America and in South America, which, which has been a new challenge for me, right? Navigating time zones, navigating coverage. Um, you know, you wake up every morning and there's a bunch of WhatsApp messages and, and you know, just um, cleaning that out, e emails, uh, telegram, you know, different forms of the communications that people have um, and understanding that more so than any other sport, it's very hard to get the players in the same room at the same time anywhere um, because they're all playing, they're all practicing. I'm based most uh, weeks when I'm when I'm actually home in Washington, D.C. or right outside of Washington, D.C. Being able, you know, even around Grand Slams to get players in the same place at the same time, we've learned you got to meet them where they are, when they are available, and however they are available um, by, by any means of communication. I mean, as someone who has worked across multiple sports, what was your observation of tennis before you actually got involved intimately like you have in the last 12 months? Had you had a view on on tennis from the outside, was taking an interest in sport across the globe? Uh, so I grew up playing tennis, tennis and American football, which is two kind of odd, uh, an odd combination, I guess. Um, but grew up playing tennis, um, fan of all sports, uh, so followed all sports um, and and really, you know, for, for a long time now. And so um, and, and then in the last 20 years, really followed the business of the sports, right? And, and it always stuck out to me the way um, and the differences in the way golf and tennis in particular on the, on the individual sports side were run compared to um, the team sports. Now, there's a lot of crossover. You still have broadcast deals. Um, you still have sponsorship deals. Um, and, and it always struck me as interesting that in golf and tennis, you really have a dynamic where there's no team name on the front of a jersey, right? Even LeBron James, he's sharing the front billing with the Lakers, and then on the back is his name and number. And in golf and tennis, you don't have that dynamic. They're they're tuning in to watch, you know, Cam Smith. They're tuning in to watch Ans Jabour. In a lot of ways, that should make the player position, the player power 
even stronger in those individual sports. Because if you and I, and I don't know how your tennis game uh, looks, but if you and I are playing the finals of Wimbledon, that looks a lot different than Novak and Carlos. Um, and so, or Ons and Marquetta. So it, it's it's a different construct. And yet when you when you dug into it, it was, it's the exact opposite, right? Those, those individual sports, um, and, and we've all seen what's happened in golf, but, but the, the golfers are 2X where the tennis players are. The tennis players are uniquely left behind in that global sports industry ecosystem. So talking of that ecosystem, and when, when Novak obviously put his name to it as one of the, the biggest figures in the sport for everything that he's achieved, and people at the time were a little sceptical. Okay, what's this going to become and lead to? Is he actually going to really care about the world number 700, 800? It, it is a big ecosystem as we know, and this is something we discuss on our show quite a bit that this is a, a tough sport to actually make it in effect you're a independent contractor you don't have an employment contract you've got to change cities pretty much every week to go and earn your prize money the higher you get up the picking order well there's there's extra benefits that come and endorsements and off-court uh, deals to supplement certainly the prize money do you think we could get to a time where tennis players could become employees of the sport and have a little bit more of a solid base, if you like? One thing we discuss quite a bit is, you know, how many players in this vast sport should actually be making a living out of the sport? Because this has been a discussion for so long that so many don't. Those are all absolutely questions we should be asking ourselves and the player leaders themselves as well and the entire ecosystem. I think I think we can all agree that it should be more than currently are able to generate a living from a top five global sport, um, that it should be several hundred of players, should it be several thousand? And and think about other global sports, football, uh, meaning soccer, right? Not not American football, but football and, and even basketball. If you think about it, now there they have the luxury of defined leagues and tiers of leagues, right? So if you go to the UK, you have the EPL, you have the lower tiers, right? And so I think people are conditioned to understand that if you're good enough to play in the EPL, that you're going to be making a certain standard, right? Um, and, and then with variance within that, depending on how, how good you are and, and how you produce. And so when we think about tennis, you know, it's probably at least the people who qualify or play in majors, right, in Grand Slam. So you got 128 men, 128 women. You've got doubles players on both the men's side and the women's side. So you know, that's probably a core group of call it 300 players who should really be able to consistently count on making a living playing tennis. And I don't think we're at that point yet. And then beyond that, we should really, I think it's a reasonable thing to think that there are probably another 300 players that are making a living, but maybe not as good of a living, but in the hopes of advancing, right? That it's not quite promotion relegation, but there's a, you know, you, you go up the rankings, you have a breakthrough, you have a great year and you're able to, to put yourself on a higher plane, like you said, and you've got then sponsorship and other ancillary income coming in. And, and, and in tennis, it's not really ancillary, right? In tennis, it usually dwarfs what you make on, on the actual court, which again, I think brands are paying players to endorse them because of their market value. And it just defies logic to me that the market value wouldn't correlate to how the market value on a court is, right? I mean, somebody is leaving money on the table if we're in a world where the absolute, I mean, the brands that pay these players are not engaging in charity. They have all sorts of data about how the players move the needle, 
social media, how they, how they can drive point of sale, how they can drive signups, subscribers, depending on the business model. And yet somehow that doesn't get reflected in the core sport, the traveling, the weekend, the week out, the tournaments. Um, and that, that really is one of the fundamental problems that we set out to try to address. And, and you started the question by asking, I had the same question, right? Are they serious about this? And I had the question when I read about the PTPA being founded in 2020, and I had it when I got to meet them last year in person. And I, I was very impressed with the amount of time and energy and, and money out of their own pockets prior to my getting involved that the player leaders put into this. So I, I was very pleased to see that. And because any players association is going to rise and fall, not on people like me, who are the staff and who are lucky enough to work with these athletes, but it's really going to rise and fall on the player leaders. And that's true across any sport. And so there are plenty of sports where they don't have committed player leaders, and then it shows. And then you have sports, and there's kind of an apathy and a malaise around the work of players' associations. And then there are sports, particularly early on, where you have these foundational, transformational people who, who have taken a look at the world. And remember, uh, Bethany Maddox-Sands served on the WTA Player Council for years. Uh, Novak and Vashik, John Isner, who's on our executive committee, all of those guys served for many years on the player council. I think we, we counted it up. I mean, it's 20 plus years between all of them of serving on a player council. So, so these are people who by and large tried to affect change from within the system. And what they realized was, well, this system doesn't work for us, the players, and it's not the system that other sports have. And what do they have? They have players associations that are independent, that are independently funded uh, and staffed and, and are laser focused on what is best for the players. And we should try to build something like that. And they did all that before I ever got involved. So all, all credit to them. Both sports have had like a player council. If we take the ATP, for example, they've had a chairman, they've had representatives of the tournaments, they've had representatives from the players. If we think of the former ATP boss, Chris Commode at the time, who I'd met in London many years ago, who did a lot of great things for the sport. He increased prize money across his time, but he was a little conflicted because he'd been a tournament director. He'd been uh, obviously working within that tournament structure. And it is fascinating if, for, to try and explain the tennis governance structure to just the layman out there, they probably wouldn't totally sort of understand it. What's your view on that and and the dialogue that you've been able to have with the ATP and the WTA over the past 12 months of how receptive they are to what you're doing and what you're trying to create? Everybody seems to agree, and this is the good news, that if you, if you pulled out a blank piece of paper and drew up the optimal governing structure for the sport, it would look nothing like what we actually have. And, and to your point, there's plenty of people, when you try to represent all sides, you're going to represent none of them, right? It's just not going to work uh, structurally. And I think Steve Simon, Andrea, Massimo, uh, Chris Kermode before them, I mean, these are all good um, professional people. This is not a knock on them whatsoever. It's the structure, as you said, that is really um, the outlier. And nobody, I mean, if I worked within that structure, would really be able to optimize the sport from within that structure. And so, you know, I think there's a general agreement on that. And you mentioned the ATP and the WTA. I'd add the, the four grand slams are sitting there saying, well, well, you know, we only really control eight weeks of the year, yet here we are, you know, generating Lord knows how much of the, the broadcast interest, but, but of the revenue side, probably something like two thirds of the revenue. And that, that is, again, way out of whack. And I think everybody would agree and say, well, what about the other 44 weeks of the year? What's happening? And so 
trying to, now I've also had people say, well, tennis was already too fragmented. You had seven, you have the ITF, four Grand Slams, two, two tours, a men's tour and a women's tour. You know, now the WTA has taken out outside investment. So you have a lot of fragmentation. And so one of the questions we got originally is, well, is, is the PTA just another fragment now? And, and my view on that is, no, we're, we're here to help unify those, those different fragments, right? Because really at the end of the day, if you look, if you just distill it all down, you have the event organizers on one side, teams, leagues, tours, any kind of sport, right? From the Olympics all the way to the NBA and the NFL and the MLB, the EPL, and yes, the ATP and the WTA. And then you have the people who are the reason we watch, the athletes, who are really the workers, the talent, whatever word you want to use, but they're over here. And, and really, at the end of the day, these sports that we would say, no, those are really well-run sports. And they are exciting. They're innovative. They've changed over the decades. They've grown the pie for everyone, not just for the players, but for the players, for the owners, um, for the fans and broadcasters, right? Everybody is better off now. And, and David Stern, may he rest in peace, was, was a, a bit of a mentor after he left the NBA. And we used to joke about, you know, here he is a league guy and, and, and I'm a players association guy, but you could learn a lot from people like that. Because when he took over the NBA in the 80s, they were on tape delay for the finals, right? They, they, you couldn't watch the NBA finals live unless it was in your local market. And, and of course, now we know and love what the NBA has become and it's a global phenomenon and the players are global stars. And then you really look deeper. Well, how did the NBA do that? They leaned into their players, you know, starting with people like Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and building through, obviously, the Michael Jordan years and, and uh, to now LeBron and Steph Curry and, and, and now handing the torch, so to speak, to this incoming crop of young players. And, and it's all about the players. Right. And that's what drives the interest. And so. And this is a guy who, who rightly or wrongly, right, he's, he's on the league side. He's, he's not, you know, a union guy uh, like I am. But he understood the power that the players had in that dynamic. And because of that, leaned into it as opposed to leaning away from it. And so that is sort of our vision is, is look, we really would all be better off. And there's been a lot of talk about merging the tours. There's been a lot of talk about better coordination of the Grand Slams at the Grand Slam level. Totally agree. But that also should include the players, because when all is said and done, if the dust clears and you've got people running the events and people representing the players and that sometimes it's like this and sometimes it's like this, but you're actually working together to be able to grow the sport for everybody. Because I think that's one of the frustrations that a lot of people have had. And this is the WTA's 50th anniversary. There's been I brought up the NBA 40 years ago. I could make a decent argument that tennis was actually better off as a sport, as an industry. 40 years ago. And I don't know really many sports, boxing, horse racing, that you could say that about, but it's not good to be able to say that. Given the explosion of interest and, and value that we've seen across all sports, to even have that be a question is really a form of an indictment on on the business. So just to extend a bit further on on the playing group, you set up a, a player executive committee. Obviously, over the past 12 months, you've you know, met with the players, made a lot of different presentations. Obviously, that sort of player interest, I imagine, has built. You know, some who at the start might have thought, okay, I'm not sure. You know, do I come and listen? Do I get involved? To what level can I uh, get involved? How's this going to benefit me? Can you just give us a bit of a feel of how it's all evolved 
with the playing group and some of the key messages, consistent key messages that you hear from them, Ahmed, as the people who are at the coalface of the sport plying their trade week in, week out? It's been really busy and, and I would say successful first year. We built our first ever player executive committee, four men, four women. So Novak, Vashik John, who we've already spoken about. Uh, Hubie Herkatch is uh, uh, another member. That's the, those are the four men. Bethany Maddox-Sands, who I already mentioned, Anz Jabour, Paula Bedosa, Sai Sai Zhang are the four women who represent uh, the women on the executive committee. So you've got four men and four women. We've met 450 players across both tours on essentially every continent on the planet over the last year. We've had meetings and events at all four, uh, well, we're planning on the U.S. Open, but the, the first three Grand Slams, we have uh, fourth coming up. Although if you go back to last year, our first meeting, as the rebooted PTPA was at the U.S. Open. Um, so even in those scenarios, um, we're getting 50 players together, men and women, at the actual, you know, the week before the Grand Slam. Um, our executive committee meets monthly. We meet in person um, when we're at, you know, Australia or uh, Indian Wells uh, or obviously Wimbledon most recently. Um, and then in between those uh, uh, events where we're all together, we, we get together via Zoom. And we really are charting out, okay, where do we go from here? Because we've built out um, the executive committee. We've built out the bylaws uh, of the organization. We've built out what we call the PTPA principles. We posted it on the website. And, and we said, look, we have to tell people what, what we stand for, right? It's, it's, it's important that, that we clarify that we're not a breakaway tour. We're not, you know, we're a players association. And so, you know, one of the things I told the players originally, great. So we're telling people we're not live tennis, right? We're not trying to do uh, what, what we saw in golf. Um, but what are we trying to do? And explaining that to people. So we put a lot of time and energy talking through what are the, you know, four or five main big picture points and its structure and it's things like anti-doping um, and, and making sure that that's a logical professional process, right? And there's been a lot of news in the last year really about that because it is unlike any other professional sport, including golf, Right. And so this is not just about money and dollars and cents because it's hard to really get fans, you know, uh, uh, excited about, oh, gee, you know, we have professional athletes saying they want to make more money. It's really about protecting them as employees. And could you imagine um, being told that you've tested positive and then having to wait nine, 10 months like Simona Halep has waited? And, I, you know, I, I mentioned this to her team the other day. I don't even know what winning that appeal looks like anymore, right? Because it's been 10 months. You've lost your ranking. You've lost the ability to earn prize money. That's never going to come back. You've been tarred and feathered publicly, right? And, and so if you win, air quotes, your appeal, uh, you don't get a time machine and go back. And by the way, how does it work in other sports? Can we ask that question? Well, in other sports, you don't get suspended until you've exhausted your appeal. It's not announced publicly until you've exhausted your appeal. And as a result, Every other sport hears your appeal within 30, 45, 60 days because they don't want this to linger, right? And that is really the way, and anybody hearing that would say, oh yeah, that makes a lot more sense, mm. right? And then other things like, like um, Michael Eimer got suspended 18 months, right? For allegedly missing three drug, drug tests. By the way, this was for something that happened 18 months ago. So he's now been playing for 18 months with a cloud over his head wondering he won his original appeal that in turn got uh, appealed to the court of arbitration for sport, which he just recently lost. So he's been playing under a cloud for 18 months. 
with another 18 months now of a suspension. And, and you will, no other sport, including golf, if you test positive, like caught red-handed for a performance-enhancing drug, no other sport on a first offense suspends you more than a full year. And yet here he is saying a year and a half. And then you say, well, why is that? Well, because we use the WADA model, which is really the Olympic model. And in the context of the Olympics, two to four year cycles makes perfect sense. But in the context of a professional sport with four grand slams every year and the tours every year that are annualized events like the NBA season and the NFL season and the EPL season, it makes no sense. And yet here we are. And so part of our reason for being is to fill those gaps, tell those stories, explain that, you know, ask the questions. Well, how does it work in other sports? No need to reinvent the wheel. And that message has really resonated with players because they understand even fines, right? Everybody understands if you smash your racket, if, if, if you throw it into the stands and it hits somebody, you're going to get fined. You might get suspended. Totally makes sense. But then we had situations earlier this year where somebody got fined more money than he'd earned, right? Well, well, that doesn't make sense you know, that they earned in the last year. And, and then what is these opaque appellate processes, right? Oh, well, a player, you can appeal. Great. How do you, how do you do that? And, and do you have to hire your own lawyer? Do, do you have any access to information of, well, what kind of fines are usually in the right range? And, and, and the answer is up until now, no, they haven't had that information. Now, maybe they're lucky enough to have an agent who had dealt with a similar case, Maybe they hire a lawyer who's represented other players in similar situations. But every lawyer I know who I've talked to about, and I practiced law myself before joining um, the Players Association uh, many years ago, you know, they all speak about tennis in hushed tones of that is the sport that is just really the outlier in terms of how the other sports are organized. So that is the voice of Ahmed Nasir, of course, the executive director of the PTPA, the Professional Tennis Players Association. That is part one. We'll bring you part two for our special US Open show uh, next uh, Monday night ahead of uh, day one. It's a fascinating space. They're in their infancy. But they're looking to grow and they're looking to really represent uh, the players. And we know with tennis, uh, the governance structure has been a point of conjecture. There's a lot going on in the Saudi space in terms of their investment into tennis whether one day we'll see the tours uh, merge, there is plenty happening uh, behind the scenes. Uh, Connor Joyce is our newsman. He's not too far away. And our college segment with Lockie Peel, catching up with Amy Stevens. All to come here on The First Serve. Celebrating 15 years, thanks to GLG Green Life Group, your specialist in keeping your sports turf in top condition with minimal disruption at glgcorp.com. This is The First Serve, your home of tennis. Great to have your company on this Monday night. Uh, Brett Phillips with you a week away from the US Open. Connor Joyce is our newsman. He writes some great stuff for us at thefirstserve.com.au. Connor, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Brett. Pleasure to be on. Uh, Destiny Iava. I think back a few years ago when Destiny got inside the top 150, I reckon I was in uh, Canberra or Wollongong. She got a little Guernsey playing uh, Fed Cup at the time and it's been a tough period, certainly beyond that. I'm not sure she coped all that well, certainly being in the spotlight. She was only 17, 18 at the time. And I suppose we followed her journey with a bit of interest, but she had a win on the weekend, which is hard to win on these uh, tournaments on the ITF tour. They are, yeah. Her first title of the season. And she's played about 19 events um, across a few different continents. So, yeah, they don't come easy. Um but yeah, I mean, we're just, you know, on, on your PTPA sort of topic and, you know, the amount of money she would have spent this year traveling around and uh, she's actually taken to Facebook in the in the past couple of weeks, yeah. like Australian tennis community, it's a page online yep. 
suggesting, yeah, can she get sort of sponsorship from anyone in there? Um, and that, you know, if she can't get anything, she's sort of going to stop playing um, next year because, yeah, I mean, she'd be struggling to break even. Even winning a title, um, you know, it's still, you know, hard to even make a profit, um, yeah. It's a difficult road. I think we heard Tom Fancutt, who we've had on this show, I know Roddy Reynolds, one of our reporters, chatted to Tom across the journey, who also expressed... Uh, a little bit of his own hardship uh, going back a few months ago, uh, being stuck in Australia. He'd actually been having a good year in the early part and just didn't have the funds to continue travelling. And we talked to our tennis state grade guests every week. Some would love to get on the tour more, but, yeah, the funds are uh, hard to come by. So it's one we'll follow with a little bit of interest. Uh, Olivia Gadecki winning a doubles title over the weekend. So Rinky Hijikata and Storm Hunter, Connor, they've received the reciprocal wild cards. Probably no great surprise there. No, definitely not. They're the two sort of Aussies, um, you know, closest to, to being in that top 100 and, and get the reciprocal uh, wild cards, which will be given back to a couple of Americans uh, in January. But, um, yeah, one other one in there, Venus Williams. Uh, she gets one. She's 43 years old, playing a 24th US Open main draw. Um, she actually reached the final 26 years ago and uh, she'll be going around again. I think she wants um, to race and the yes, best, get to 50. Of, lots of other... Aussies in the in the qualifying and main draws. Yeah, indeed. So no curious as we know, nine in the main draw. Duckworth and, and John Millman uh, back. Uh, it's been a long time between drinks. We had him on around Wimbledon time here and he's been dealing with that you know, really tough injury. So great to see Millman back in qualies. And uh, I think what Sweeney's the first alternate at the moment. He is, yeah. An interesting place to be. You would think uh, amongst the main draw and, and the entire qualifying, there's 220-odd players that he just needs one of them to, to drop out and he'll hopefully be able to find his way. I'm sure he's in New York, so hopefully he can get through uh, you know, and get us put in the in the qualifying draw. And, and fingers crossed, uh, Isla Tomjanovic gets to the line. Been a tough year having to miss all the majors. Yeah, for sure. Her and, and Nick uh, both withdrew just before the Australian Open and, yeah, haven't really got back out there. So, yeah, hopefully uh, hopefully she's there and, uh, you know, boasts our, our stocks in the, in the women's draw. Uh, so Darius Sebel, Isla in the main draw. Kim Birrell, she's right on the cusp, isn't she? Unless a, a few drop out. Yeah, yeah, it looks like she'll be one of seven or eight um, women heading to, to qualifying, I think, yeah. So Gadecki, Arena Rodinova, Jamie Foolis, Astra Sharma, Priscilla Hahn, Lizette Cabrera. It's sort of been um, that group for quite a while that have been in qualies. The Davis Cup team, is that the team you would have selected, uh, Connor, which was announced uh, last week? So Demonor picks himself, Thompson, Purcell, Kokonakis, uh Ebdom, gee, Vukic in great form, and Popperin, uh, who's struck gold the last few weeks, can't get in. Yeah, exactly right. It's an interesting one. We've had so many um, Aussies around that around that fifty mark and pushing pushing inside the top fifty. Yeah, I mean, Max Purcell's had a brilliant fortnight, as you said, Vukic and Popperin as well. Probably the the two unluckiest to miss out. I think Purcell probably offers variety in that he can play singles and he'll yep. probably definitely play the doubles. And Jordan Thompson. It's just uh, one of those guys that probably performs a little bit higher maybe in the green and gold, so he gets the nod, but there's a lot of guys pushing for selection. So, yeah, hopefully uh, we can put a, a good campaign together. There's some strong opposition. Andy Murray, Stan Warrinka have, have got in for, for Switzerland, Great Britain um, and France also in our group. So, yeah, hopefully we get a, a good run. That'd be nice. Australia in Manchester post uh, the US Open. Connor, thank you. We'll have a more expanded chat uh, next week. A big three-hour US Open show next Monday night. Sounds good. Thanks, Brett. Connor Joyce, all the news in and around. Just some of the things we might have missed. A quick break on the other side, a college segment with Lockie Peel. Celebrating 15 years, thanks to GLG Green Life Group, your specialist in keeping your sports turf in top condition with minimal disruption at glgcorp.com. 
This is the first serve, your home of tennis. This time of the show where I hand over the reins to Lachlan Puel. He brings us our colleague segment. Lockie, a big welcome and a very special guest with you tonight. Thanks, Brett. On our college segment tonight, we catch up with Geelong's Amy Stevens, who's going into her junior year at Vanderbilt University. She played five and six in the singles lineup with a 30 and 13 uh, singles record. They finished 30 in the country after going down in the last 32 against 10th seed uh, Ohio State. So they had a great season. Even getting a ranking uh, in the NCAA uh, Division One rankings is an achievement for any school out there. So finishing 30, a great achievement for Vanderbilt. Now, what's so special about Vanderbilt is that they are, in fact, a private school. So that they don't really get public funds that you'd see from other SEC Southeastern Conference uh, institutions. So that means that the academic requirements are much higher. So not only do you have to be a great athlete, but you've also got to have really high academic scores as well. Now, Amy did play the FISU uh, World University Games, uh, which was hosted in China. She represented Australia. She played alongside Enzo Aguiard, uh, who's at the University of Alabama, and of course, Josh Charlton, who's just graduated from the University of Oregon. So Amy gives us a glimpse into uh, the spring season of last year, what she's been doing uh, over the summer, and what she expects for the fall and the spring of next year. This year is uh, like a mini Olympics, essentially, for university athletes. Um, there's 15 sports and I believe 150 countries all competing for gold, silver, and bronze. Um, it was, yeah, just so surreal. It was insane to be you know one selected and then two being able to wear the green and gold and compete for not only myself and Vanderbilt but also for my country um there's a limited space in tennis to be able to do that so being able to compete as a team and um be surrounded by um other amazing athletes was just insane I have no words really um and it's yeah a little bit different to France in terms of uh I think the mere size of it France is uh I guess eight countries um and just tennis whereas um the FISU World Uni Games is yeah, like, like a mini Olympics, like I said, and um, all the greatest athletes, university athletes, sorry, competing for that, you know, title. So uh, amazing experience. And you've spent the last couple of months in Melbourne and obviously from Geelong uh, as well. So what has your whole training structure been like? Obviously playing in the FISU University Games, but have you played any other sort of tournaments or even the state grade or, or pennant or anything along those lines? Um, so unfortunately, I wasn't able to, you know, make my debut in the state grade there. Um, my training was, you know, purely focused around getting myself physically, psychologically um, match ready to compete. I was coming off a big uh, spring season at Vandy. Um, so I was wanting to, you know, take the time to rest first and foremost. And then um I actually, I wanted to build it up really nicely. So started off, I think about a, had about a 16 week training block, um, maybe a little less, sorry. And I was really focused. I was um, driving up and down to Melbourne each day, which is about a four hour overall commute. I was really focusing on the physical side, um, really getting into the Pilates. That's my new, my new phase I'm going through. Um, uh, found that's really been helping with tennis, but then also um, really working on the mental side with the coach. Um, didn't find I need too many 
technical changes. Um, I found that held up really nicely um, over the spring season. Um, but yeah, just focused on, um, you know, what to do in those moments, gonna be competing on a world stage. So gonna have nerves, um, but, you know, learning to control them and um, being able to perform under that pressure was really a focus for me during those um, months before the World Uni Games. And even going into the fall, if you look at the NCAA rules, you're, you've got the no ad scoring as well. So that's added pressure. You're going to get into you know many clashes where you're at three all and you, you play the deciding match, deciding set, sometimes the deciding tiebreak. And you guys had a great season. You finished 30 in the NCAA rankings. I mean, you qualified for the NCAAs. You went down to Ohio State, who are a you know, top 10 program. Uh, what are you looking forward to most going into fall season when you fly out uh, next week? Um, oh, the fall season's great. I really, you know, I would say not a lot of people are excited for the fall season because it's so individualised, but I, I personally really enjoy it. Um, it's a chance to work on your game um, in, I would say, a less pressured situation than um, the spring, but you're also really against good competitors um, who are all looking um, and vying for that uh title at the regionals and even trying to look to make individual um, rankings. So um, I look at it as a chance to work on my game and um, get prepared for the spring season. Um, we've got a lot of great um, upcoming matches. Um, I think we've got a couple of invitationals we're going to, um, uh, potentially uh, nationals if we uh, qualify for that and then um, potentially a good one against Auburn. So I'm really looking to capitalise on making a lot of training games in, in terms of uh, technical and um, mental and even tactical advances in fall season. So really looking forward to making a jump before the spring season kicks off. And for those back home in Australia, the SEC, the Southeastern Conference, just give us a feel of how tough that is. Obviously, it's a Power 5 conference, but now with the addition of the University of Texas and the uh, University of Oklahoma coming across into the SEC, what do you make of that? Uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a ridiculous conference in terms of the toughness and competitiveness. No match is easy. Uh, we play for, well, I guess now we'll have 14 teams, which is, I would say, one of the biggest conferences um, in the D1 uh, space. So uh, <laughs> it's easy is a complete understatement. It's not easy. No one would ever call it easy. The matches that you think are going to be a little bit easier are never going to be. Everyone's super competitive. I would say it's one of the toughest conferences for women um, there is, apart from the ACC, I believe it's called. Um, but it's, it's a really great conference to be in. You're matched up against these girls who are vying for those top positions and looking to become professional afterwards. And that's the space you want to be in. Um, all the teams, I would say, are, most of them are within the top 20. Um, I would say all, uh, maybe a couple outside, but they're all super competitive. So it's, it's the conference you want to be in, I would say, if uh, you're a girl looking to... Um, you know, really push into that pro space or just be a great athlete, like the SEC is the place to be. Yeah, your next door neighbor, Mississippi State, Ole Miss, I mean, that's like a six hour drive. <laughs> so you look at going from Melbourne to Geelong as being two hours or an hour and a half one way and then an hour and a half, two hours back. But this is something at a completely different level. <laughs> 
It, it, it is, yeah. You have to be prepared for those, you know, long long road trips. Um, we were lucky enough last semester to um, fly to a lot of these um, uh, matches. Um, however, I'm not sure how lucky we're going to be this semester. You know, we'll get the occasional flight. But, um, yeah, we, we have to be prepared for those, uh, I think, eight, you know, eight-hour, ten-hour trips. Um, but I, I do love them in the end. They're, they're tough, but I love them. You get to be on the road, get to see a lot of America that you wouldn't normally see. Um, it is tough with school, though. I mean, we uh, we have to leave on, you know, Wednesday night, Thursday, um, missing a lot of school. So have to remain on top of that, um, be very diligent um, with, you know, uh, schedule and everything so it's really cool but it's it's also tough it's not easy that's for sure well it's all worthwhile in the end so we wish you the best of, of luck we hope to catch up with you over the course of the fall and the, and the spring we'll keep up to date with all the results and of course how all the other aussies across uh, all the divisions are doing so thanks so much for coming on our college segment and we'll uh, hope to Absolutely. hear from you soon Thank you very much. Thank you. A big thank you to Amy for coming on our college segment tonight. So many great insights into her time at Vanderbilt and also representing Australia at the FISU World University Games hosted in China alongside Josh Charlton and Enzo Aguiar. Now, we have followed uh, Amy pretty extensively over last season. Uh, That all goes to our social media uh, platforms, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So if you don't follow us on our socials, I'd highly recommend you uh, give us a follow. We uh, post college highlights and, and interviews and and much much more we've got different areas that we cover not only in college but uh, wheelchair tennis and there's juniors and there's so many aspects that we are the home of so i'd highly recommend you uh, give us a follow you can also listen to one of our uh, podcast offerings that's play usa uh, where we catch up with all of the aussies who are over at college at the moment who have elected to go down the college pathway. Uh, We also catch up with coaches and administrators and anyone who's in the college space. Uh, If you haven't listened to our last podcast, that's with Brisbane's Eric Padham, who plays at the University of Arizona. So that's August's edition. Now, September's edition, that'll be released at the start of next month. That's where we catch up with Brisbane's Chen Dong and also his coach, uh, Danny Bryan, now there at Louisiana State uh, University. Both give us a great chat, a great insight. What's special about this podcast is is that it's our first where we catch up with an Aussie player and also their coach as well. So Coach Danny Bryan, in fact, played with Michael Venus and also Neil Scoopsy. They're both top 20 in the world uh, in doubles. Now is their head coach. He gives us a great insight into the whole collegiate pathway and how it's an alternate route uh, into the ITFs and the challenges and also going on to the ATP tour. So if you have any feedback, any comments, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you can send us an email at the first serve sen at gmail.com. We'll get back to you. Uh, and that's the wrap for our college segment this week. Unfortunately, we're out of time. It's back over to you, Brett. Thank you, Locke. Always uh, great to tune in. Amy Stevens, a terrific guest. We'll come back and wrap up the first serve. Thanks to GLG Green Life Group, your specialist in keeping your sports turf in top condition with minimal disruption at glgcorp.com. This is the first serve, your home of tennis. Another first serve in the can for the week. Always great to have your company on the Monday night. Uh, next Monday night, of course, leading into the US Open, which starts at uh, what 1am Tuesday morning, the 29th, Australian Eastern Standard Time. So 
Yeah, we flip it around for the US Open in New York. So we'll have a special three-hour show next week for AATC, Australasian Academy of Tennis Coaches, providing quality coach education right across the globe. Magnificent courses delivered by industry leaders, tennis business owners. You can learn locally, coach globally, internationally endorse, inquire and enrol at aatc.tennis. Linton and Joseph and his team do a magnificent job. So we'll bring you part two of the PTPA chat next week. We'll check in with the Aussies uh, throughout the week. Hopefully a few more can get through qualifying. Uh, plenty in the main draw, particularly for the men. Gee, it's nice, isn't it? Demonor 13, Popperin 40, Purcell 47, Thompson 50, Vukic 51. Let's see the Aussies continue to rise, hopefully. Monday night, 8 o'clock. We'll catch you then for the first serve.